You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. You only you only owned a cell phone for what an hour? I owned two, and I I had one for two days and one for about four hours, um, and uh, they were both mistakes. Um, I do not use email uh, in or out. Uh, faxes had come to me, and I mean we probably process my personal office. We probably process two to three hundred inbounds a week. Uh, and that's everything from a one-page inquiry from somebody for the first time. It's fan mail. You know, I read your book, and it did this, it did that. It's questions. I read your book, and I don't understand this. It's 46-page faxes from a client. Um, but there's two, 300 things to handle every week. Uh, a few of those faxes are forwarded to me daily. Most of them are not. Um, Vicki organizes them, groups them, along with mail, and I get a box once a week. Okay. For anybody that knows, Vicki is his, his office manager in Phoenix. Yeah, she is in Phoenix, and I am in Ohio. Um, and um, she's infinitely happier than if I were in Phoenix. Um, and, and sometimes I tell her, as unhappy as you are today, just imagine how unhappier you would be if I was there with you. Uh, I know the answer to that. So, <laughs> Thank you, God. Um, <laughs> he lives so, in Ohio. You know, no matter how bad a day she has, at least I ain't there. Um, so it could always be worse. So I get a box once a week. And um, and so people send a fax who think, you know, you were sitting there by the fax machine. That's not the case. Um, and, and consequently, there's a lag time in dealing with everything. Um, I have a, most days, I have a, a call with Vicki that uh, usually lasts under a half an hour. Occasionally, it'll press the hour mark. Um, and um, I suppose on average, three days a week, uh, because like today, I won't have that call. Uh, you and I are going to run into 6 o'clock or a little bit afterwards, and although that's only 3 o'clock in Phoenix, I've put in a full day, and I don't feel like having the call. Um, uh, but for the most part, we have a conversation once every day or every couple of days. And, again, she's organized for that, as am I. Um, I have a scheduled call with Bill Glazer once a month um, for an hour. Rarely do we need any other time. If we do, he schedules it. Um, I see Pete a little two to three times a month, um, and it's business combined with social. And Pete is the, for those who don't know, he Pete's publishes a printer. Other newsletter. He publishes the newsletter, the info. just information marketers. Right. And, and, and he's also known as Pete the Printer. Pete the Printer, yeah. And uh, so Saturday nights at the track, uh, we usually have dinner together and go over business and make a charitable don donation to the uh, Horseman's Fund. Um, by losing money? By losing money. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> um, uh, my coaching groups, of course, communicate with scheduled calls or faxes that are in the regular system. Uh, Vicki sorts my inbounds. You know, I got A's, I got B's, and I got C's. And there's, a, there's a fairly predictable and consistent time lag for each group, um, barring inordinate 
times when I'm going to be gone or incommunicado for an extended period of time, like a week where all the coaching groups occur. So that whole week's a blowout. Um, and so there's no box that week, and everything has a longer lag time. But generally speaking, my inbounds that are ranked A's are going to get attended to within a week of my receipt of them. Now, that may very well mean they're two weeks old. The B's, it's going to be maybe two weeks. And the C's are literally at random. And the C stack, fortunately, a lot of things, by the time I actually get serious about doing something with it, I don't have to because it's taking care of itself. You and I talked about that yesterday. Is this getting almost throw half of that away? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it somehow solves itself. Um, I, I work with designated days for designated purposes. And I think that's another reason that I'm probably more productive than most people. So all of my phone appointments tend to be clumped, and there will be three, two, four days during the month when phone calls get scheduled, not two today, one tomorrow, another one on Friday. So it's not just the scheduled start and stop time. It's phone work is all clumped into a day. And I know pretty much that's all I'm doing that day. And I'm not, I don't have anything else interrupted, nor do I have it interrupted. I have no other expectations about being able to get anything else done. I'm not frustrated that I didn't get anything else done. I blocked the entire day for phone calls. And similarly, I have writing days where all I do is write. And I have office work days where I deal with the accumulate the faxes and the correspondence and contracts and bookkeeping and tax forms. Uh, but each each sort of group of functions gets a dedicated day. Uh, most of my at-home days, I work from oh, 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning until 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, except the days when I go out to the track in the morning. And uh, then I'm out of here from 7 to 9, and my day doesn't really start until 9 o'clock. Um, I rarely send any faxes of my own. Occasionally I do. <laughs> but most of my correspondence goes back to Phoenix a couple of times a week. Uh, and my so, Federal Express, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. This one company I don't own stock in, and she, I wish I you had. You should have stock in Federal Express. Um, uh, because that 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 is a big part of, uh, I, of I, my expense. I know that people in Ohio, whoever owns the place you do that, love you. Yep, they're very happy campers. Um, and so Vic will get a FedEx for me two times a week or three three times a week with all the work for her to do. Um, and, uh, and of course, in bo- both of those cases, what I'm sending to her and what she's sending to me, our, our goal is to make it question-free, uh, meaning that she doesn't get it and then have five things she feels she needs to ask me before she can dispense with it all, and vice versa. So it, it's a discipline. It forces us to think through uh, and make sure that if she needed to be told this, there's a post-it note on it that tells her that. Uh, and for the most part, we're pretty successful. Um, I never take incoming calls that aren't scheduled. Um, and I consistently resist the temptation to let even the most valuable client giving me huge gobs of money uh, to have that kind of uh, access and freedom. There are about probably 10 people in my business life who actually have my direct personal line, 
and uh, they know to use it only under extraordinary duress. Um, and everybody else uh, uh, goes through the, you know, goes through the system. I used to. You ask about travel. You know, one of the things that used to amuse people when I was on the road a lot, we would stack up. You know, 10 people, 12 people, 15 people who all wanted to talk to me about something. And now, Vicky will handle some of them without them talking to me. Some of them will be told it would be better if you put that in a fax. And the rest of them will get scheduled phone appointments. When I traveled, we'd get to the point there would actually be too many to schedule appointments for. So they would all get a fax, say, on Friday, saying on Tuesday... Dan's going to be in the Sheraton in Minneapolis from 10 o'clock until 3 o'clock before he goes over to speak at the success event. And he's taking calls from everybody listed at the top of this page. And it's a free-for-all. Keep trying until you get him. Don't leave a message because he's walking out of the hotel room without ever checking messages. So dial, and we hope you get through. And we would just pit them all against each other. Um, and I talked to as many as I could talk to. And it actually worked pretty good. Uh, it would occasionally frustrate the hell out of somebody, but it actually worked pretty good for uh, me. Uh, speaking of traveling, uh, you know, I, I know that you don't have a cell phone. You know, most people today would say, how on earth can you possibly communicate with the world and not use a cell phone? So, well, I know how you do it, but let's let's tell them. I mean, mostly, I don't. It's <laughs> the truth. You just don't communicate with I mean, them. Mostly, I don't, and I'm both amused and, and and feel pity for the people. And we see them in our seminars. Who you know, on every break, they've got to be rushing out to be on the phone. And the first thing they got to do when the airplane lands is get on the phone. And the first thing they got to do, I mean, they they got they they got to be communicating all the time. And I mean, I, I find them funny, and I also genuinely feel sad for them because it seems to me to be a miserable way to live. Um, and so mostly, I don't. I mean, I can go days without communicating with the office, and it having no way to communicate with me, and no one else having a way to communicate with me. And everything's okay, and everything's going to wait for a lot of reasons. The way the clients are controlled to start with, the schedule advisories we talked about before. I mean, this is a this is a intentionally and carefully managed process to give me a lot of freedom and peace of mind, as well as maximum productivity by working without interruption. So, I mean, we just had the. I just had the wealth group at Disney for three three days, and uh, and they're better than most because some of them, Michael Jans particularly, manages his time extremely well and has gotten to some of the same places that I've gotten to. But still, a lot of these people, every break they got to be out and be on the damn phone, and I'm like the only one who never made a phone call. Um, and so for those three days, I was there to be with them um, and to have a good time. And I never called the office. Vicky never called me, never sent me a fax. Uh, I didn't check any email because, of course, I can't and don't check email. I was undisturbed and able to both focus on what I was there to do and fully enjoy the experience without the interruptions and the disruptions. 
And uh, I've been home for two days now, and I still haven't checked the phone machine. And I unplug my personal fax when I leave because I don't like to come home and find a tray full of stuff. So I just disconnect it and uh, plug it back in when I get here. And because the days were scripted, there was no way anything new was going to get handled until tomorrow anyway. So why look at it or why hear it? Well, it also gives you that recovery time that you talked about earlier. In your in your materials that I, you know, have gathered up here all over my office and have gone through, you talk a lot about improving productivity purely through measurement. Now, I think everybody involved in the coaching business knows that that is true, but you also say that the lack of measurement and the lack of accountability causes performances to decline. Let's talk about that. Well, nothing's static. So everything is either it's moving in one direction or it's moving in another. But it's very, very hard to maintain status quo in anything. Business, health, personal performance, um, you, you name it. And so with productivity, um, you know, there's, there's movement. And if you start to take away accountability, then it will decline. And when you and if you impose accountability, uh, it improves. And as you say, every professional coach knows it. Um, in team sports, football, the coach is going to manage week to week with team statistics, but also with every player, with personal better your own best type stats. And uh, we need to do the same thing. And and the only accountability that really exists for the entrepreneur. You know, the ultimate good news, bad news joke is you're your own boss. And the good news is you're your own boss, and the bad news is you've got a really shitty, dysfunctional, incompetent boss. And, uh, Tell it like it is, Dan. And, uh, but, you know, the, the, the other accountability is at least flexible. You know, I mean, we're accountable to our clients, but really not on a moment-by-moment, function-by-function basis. So so the only accountability that really exists for the entrepreneur is reaching or missing targets. And fundamentally, there's money targets and there's time targets. And most people, by the way, try and manage themselves and their businesses purely with the money targets. But it's the time-use targets and the day-to-day time targets that make it possible to hit or miss money. If you're trying to operate by, at the end of the month, seeing whether we hit our sales quota or not, and then saying, well, we hit it, or we exceeded it, or we didn't hit it, let's take a look at next month, uh, that's always uh, too late. And you want predictive indicators, not historical indicators. And predictive indicators of money our current use of time. Uh, and so that's how you hold yourself accountable. And so, you know, I, I do it with time targets. Uh, it has more so than I do it with money targets. And so the fact that I met all but one of my time targets today um, is very, very predictive of what the bank balance is going to look like at the end of the month. Well, if, if there if if you do miss a time target, I mean, do you beat yourself up about that? Depends. A little. Um, I mean, 
today's ratio was okay. If I missed four or five of them, yeah, I'd be annoyed. Um, and I take a look at what was wrong. It would either have to be my my assessment of how long things were going to take, so my judgment was impaired. And why is that? So I don't make the same judgment mistake about the same task again. Uh, or it's because I let something get in the way. And what did I let interfere? And how did I let it interfere? And what can I do to make sure that doesn't happen again? All right, I'm going to switch gears for a second here. Um, you know, you have always talked about the importance of mastermind groups and, and why they're so powerful. But in particularly in the concept of time management, why are why is being part of a mastermind group so important for people to be successful? Well, for one thing, it's another way to bring some accountability into the entrepreneurial life. Um, and I find it to people in all of my coaching groups, um, Platinum, Gold VIP, the Wealth Group. The, the group is now holding them accountable. And, you know, nobody wants to come to show and tell with nothing to show. So, and entrepreneurs are competitive by nature. So, I mean, in platinum, you know, we've got we've got people. Well, probably one of the biggest business did forty million dollars last year, and there's I don't think there's anybody in that room who doesn't have a seven-figure personal income. And but they are extremely competitive with each other, and so. That's a motivation from meeting to meeting, which are roughly in three-month cycles, uh, to bring a lot to the table. Here's what I got done. Here's what I accomplished. Here's what I discovered. So it's another form of, you know, accountability. It's, um, it saves a lot of time through shared testing. Um, and so I have groups where everybody's in the same industry, and I have groups where they're mixed breed of dog. They're from all different kind of businesses. And either way, um, you know, the fact that you have a dozen people experimenting with different offers and different media and different marketing strategies and different ways to solve employee problems and different financial strategies and reporting on them and the results to everybody, it's simple math. If you have 12 people who each who each run four experiments this month, you've got 48 experiments done in a month. If you got to do them, how long is it going to take you to do the 48 experiments? So it, it's a terrific time saver from you know that standpoint. And lastly, it's a pretty efficient way for everybody to kind of recharge their batteries, especially the group coaching environment, which forces them to get out of their office, forces them to get out of their regular work environment, uh, forces them to one degree or another to disconnect from whatever is going on in, in normal business uh, communication um, and be in a, in a group of peers uh, for a couple of days where the entire focus is on improvement of the business. Okay, let's let's um, talk about behavior. Um, I know in the Renegade Millionaire System, um, I remember you making the point that success is more about behaviors than attitudes. And we talked about that. Uh, we talked about something you called behavior congruency. I want to revisit that and uh, tie it directly to the time management and productivity thoughts that we're discussing now. 
Well, you know, it's really pretty simple. It's that um, if the person behaves in a way that is incongruent with the goals they're trying to achieve, the objective they say they have, they can't get it. Um, it, 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 The achievement is a reflection of behavior, and so far more so even than attitude. Um, And so if you want to be if you want to be a, a real estate magnet like Trump with your name on big buildings and doing multi-million dollar deals, then you need to find several of those people who are already doing that. Identify the behaviors they have in common and emulate them. You're not going to be able to be that person emulating the behaviors of part-time residential real estate agents who hang a license in an office and sit in an open house on weekends. Um, It it just doesn't match. And so specific to time management, you know, if you come to the table and say, gee, I wish, like I occasionally will have a client say, you know, I wish I could get everybody to come to me and I wish I could get people to be more respectful of my time, you know, and I wish I could get my employees to communicate with me in a more effective and efficient manner. And I wish I could get myself liberated from constant access via cell phone and email to indiscriminately to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. And those are my objectives. Then you've got to align your behavior with somebody who lives that way, who operates their business that way. You can't continue to behave the way people do who have their time disrespected, have their staff in chaos, have constant interruptions, and and have the cell phone glued to their ear. So it really is about changing behavior. I, I have eclectic television tastes, as you know, and also... Yes, you do. Also, I collect faster than any clicker on the planet. And uh, I clicked into the World Wrestling Federation a few nights ago, and I didn't recognize the character, the wrestler who was in the ring beating his chest and screaming at the moment. But uh, but I did write down a line that he said, and he, he said, and apparently this is common street talk unbeknownst to me, but he kept repeating over and over again, don't talk about it, be about it. And, you know, it's very good language um, because it, it it addresses the issue of behavior above um, above proclamation or above attitude. And this time management thing is really no different than anything else. It, it, it begins and ends with your own behavior. Okay, well, what behaviors would you say are the most common to high achievers who are also very good time managers? Because I think people listening to this tape or CD or whatever it's going to be, it's literally need to have some kind of you know, earthy stuff, like what are the behaviors they need to be doing? They're very conscious. I mean, everybody I know who gets this is very conscious of time. Uh, they got a good clock running in their subconscious. Uh, they tend to mirror me, and the work environment tends to have clocks everywhere you look. Um, they're working against the clock, like we described earlier. Uh, they've gone through the exercise of 
that's in the book to establish the minimum dollar value their hours must be worth. So they're, they're dealing with it on a very, very conscious uh, and continuously aware level. They at least schedule well if they don't fully script, but they at least schedule very well. You know, some people might have, a, a, you know, the, you've talked about scripting, but I think some people might be confused by that. Well, a schedule is your appointments for the day. A script is every minute of the day. Okay. I mean, that's the easiest way to explain it. And so if you, if you convert it to Hollywood terms, what most people are trying to do is shoot a movie with an outline. And... And having attempted to do that with a television show, I can tell you it doesn't work very well. Um, you, you, you need to have it blocked minute by minute by minute by minute. And so a good, a good television or a movie script, if Harold is walking through the door over to a chair and sitting down, it's determined how many seconds that's supposed to take. And so that's the difference between a script and a schedule. Okay. And 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 the people who are very very good at this, uh, specifically those who've emulated me, who've learned from me, are operate with scripts. Uh, they're they're selective. Uh, they work on their ability to say no, and they they deliberately procrastinate. Uh, and procrastination's got a very bad, you know, rap, uh, but it's a very useful uh, skill and strategy. Uh, to include, uh, they work without interruptions, and you know that's probably as responsible as any one thing for my productivity is the great amount of work that I am able to do completely free of interruption and distraction. Um, they have a bias for action and tend to, to use Jim Rohn terminology, tend to take massive action. Um, I just had a conversation with Bill Glazer earlier today, and we were talking about a group of people that we both know. And he said, "I just," I, he said, "It just boggles my mind how little they get done. They walk out of here with a million-dollar plan, and three months later, they've gotten two or three parts of a twenty-part plan implemented. And the people that I work with get all twenty parts implemented simultaneously." You know, I often get that question. As a matter of fact, well, what should I do first? No, you should do it all. It's all number one. Which occasionally makes entrepreneurs think, maybe I should go get a job. Yeah, well. (laughs) Okay, as you were saying, uh, getting it all done. Well, I mean, it's it's the, the, the principle of massive action is that um, you don't you don't think sequentially, and again, it goes all the way back to time management systems designed for people in cubicles. You know, your employees think sequentially, but entrepreneurial life is not sequential. Entrepreneurial life is simultaneous, and so the building of the thing is occurring at the same time as the marketing of the thing, as at the same time as the staffing of the thing. And 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 you've got to be able to do all of that. Well, you know, you haven't mentioned self-discipline here, and you write and talk a lot about it. What about that? It's 
big issue because sort of your Superman quest, your superhuman question, however long ago that was, you know, people think that they can't function as I function because they decide that I have this incredible now self-discipline gene. And uh, and I think it's very misunderstood. If you read Psycho-Cybernetics and you pay attention to Max Maltz's work, he makes a big point out of not trying to accomplish much through teeth-gritted willpower. When you try and force yourself to do something purely through willpower or through self-discipline, uh, you have this war going on inside yourself, and it's pretty ineffective. That's why diets don't work. Well, exactly. That, that's exactly right. And so I don't think I actually have any more self-discipline than anybody else, but what I do have is what I call self-imposed discipline. And it's more than a semantic difference. It's, it's an important difference. The self-imposed discipline is the scheduling, the commitments, uh, the plans, the deadlines. You know, my friend John Carlton, a copywriter, said, you know, the greatest invention of mankind is a deadline without which there never would have been another invention. And for the most part, he's right. And so I operate under a great deal of self-imposed discipline. I've made commitments to people. Uh, I've got deadlines and timelines for everything that I do. So to get up at 6 o'clock and get to work, for me, is not an option. So it's also not a matter of iron-willed self-discipline. It's not an option. And it's sort of, in the book Profiles of Courage that, President Kennedy wrote about his PT-109 incident. He said, don't give me too much credit for heroism. I had to be a hero. The boat sank. That's good. This is what self-imposed discipline is all about. Say, I had to be productive today because there is no time tomorrow to put anything I didn't do today. Tomorrow's already fully scripted, too. So... The option of hitting the snooze alarm six times doesn't exist for me. And I don't not hit the snooze alarm because I'm this marvelously self-disciplined individual. I don't hit the snooze alarm because of all the self-imposed discipline. You know, Dan, since no man is an island and achieving goals and productivity, it all requires involvement of other people. Yeah, well, that's a big flaw. It's a big flaw. <laughs> and cooperation from other people. So how do you get that? I mean, how do you advise others to get it? I mean, you and I talk about that all the time, is getting people to do what they say they're going to do, much less, you know, extra work. Well, look, I think the first thing is, um, and I have a favorite story, the first thing is uh, when you are going to make these kinds of demands of others, you need moral authority, and uh, that means you've got to be living it. I, um, my favorite story is m- many years ago was a favor for a doctor who was in our practice management program. Um, I agreed to go do a little time management class in his office on a Saturday morning for his staff. 
and his like his biggest complaint in life was his staff and including the fact that they couldn't get there on time they went for 45 minutes for lunch and took an hour and a half the insurance billing was never done each week when it was supposed to be etc all all you know time and productivity and management issues and uh, so he's he's in Huntington Beach California and he's supposed to pick me up at uh, 8.30 in the morning, drive over to his office, and do this little class from, like, 9 to 10.30. And uh, he shows up to pick me up at 20 minutes after 9. And so we're nearly an hour late to conduct the time management class for the staff. That's just classic. And um, I said, kind of pointless, <laughs> you know, uh, because they're sitting there saying bullshit. And, you know, you can't blame them. And, you know, and they're right. Um, and, and so, you know, this starts with um, you better be serious about it. You better be committed to go the distance. And, 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 and you better get your act um, right uh, before you start really laying it on others. Now, having said that, um, then um, it starts with your rules and procedures and you know, as a as a customer, well, first of all, as I said, as an employee, I was unemployable because my whole deal with rules is, you know, that no parking sign is for the rest of the world, but they sure as hell didn't intend it for me. And you know, it doesn't have my name on it. It says Achar Credo. Our, yeah. No rules. Yeah, I mean, well, it's like the joke about the, you know, the. It's Dennis Miller's joke about the cancer warning on the cigarette pack. Right. You know, well, it didn't say Dennis if you smoke, you know. Um, so, you know, on the employee side of this, we, most of us wouldn't like it. But there's a reason we're not employees, too. You know, and, and, and as customers, we don't like it. Just like I don't like voicemail. But, you know, everybody's adapted to it. And on the cash register side of the business, running the business, it's a very, it's a very powerful tool. So you set rules. Uh, the current President Bush said in an answer to somebody's question, and I now no longer recall the question or even who the questioner was, but they were picking on him, as usual, about being sort of, you know, my way or the highway-ish. And he said, uh, if you don't set your agenda, others will. And, I mean, there it is in a nutshell. So you now determine how your business life is going to function and how everybody in it uh, is going to function with you. And you, you put it out there. And you begin to teach uh, people how they interact with you. And you get involved in hiring and firing, and I don't mean just in the context of employees. I mean everybody. Uh, the guy who parks your car, your barber, uh, vendors, clients, and employees, you may have to fire some who won't get it and replace them with somebody who will get it. And if they haven't got it after like two or three exposures, kind of like me training people how to be on the phone with me, you know, if they don't get it the first time, that's understandable because based upon their experience and expectations, it's weird. If they don't get it the second time, it may still be understandable. But it's like three strikes and you're out. You know, it's apparent you either aren't going to get it or are refusing to get it. 
And so you got to go. And you decide when your zero-tolerance policy is going to kick in, and then you make sure it kicks in and understand that everybody is replaceable. Um, and um, this is about, of course, being willing to annoy people um, and not being disturbed by that um, and being willing to say next. Well, speaking of that saying next, I mean, I know you are extremely selective about clients and customers you take. Um, I want to ask you why that's important, but before I do that, also, why do you think that most people just will take any clients, you know, they're just, they cast this broad net and take whoever they can get, and they don't take the time to really look for the desirable clients? Well, we could spend an hour on this, all of the psychosis behind that. Uh, it starts with most people's initial experience in business. And so when they start, just as when you and I started, uh, for the most part, everybody's broke. And everybody's real hungry. And everybody feels an enormous sense of urgency to somehow cover the check that they wrote two days ago. I know that feeling. And so there's a, any business from anybody under any conditions is good business because it's better than no business. And so in our world, in the speaking world, you know, it's the, I'll speak, you know, we'll speak for food. I mean, I'll speak about anything, anywhere, to anybody. You know, they call up and say, you know, hey, we see that you're listed in a directory under marketing. We happen to be looking for a speaker about the sex life of the Australian uh, ant. Um, Do you know anybody? It just so happens. Yes, I'm an expert in that. I I did a paper on that. I mean, you know, and and so that's where people start, right? Absolutely. The, The problem is, is that they never mature. And so this would be the equivalent of wearing a diaper for the rest of your life um, it, it, because it, that's the way you started, right? When you started to crawl around, you put a diaper on, and so that now you wear a diaper for the rest of your life. So most people never really mature beyond the way they did business when they started doing business. They just like do more of it, and so there's no maturing process. There's also a lot of fear, um, you know, in that. There's a closed loop to bad marketing, to the supply and demand issue. Um, and, and most people don't really understand all the virtues of the selectivity. Um, and they don't understand the necessity of it from this link to time. I mean, the reason I'm so selective, and there's two clients, consulting copywriting clients, um, who, I have, who I had an opportunity to do work for, could have had as clients, and, in, and I respect and like them both very much, and they are both enormously successful. And on one level, it would be cool to work for them. Uh, one of them is Bill Phillips, who built EAS, a big nutrition company, and wrote the book Body for, for Life. And now that his non-compete with EAS has expired, you see Body for Life food bars and shakes and all that on the shelf. And, and and I have enormous respect for Bill and could have had him as a client. Uh, but but I made no effort and flatly stated that we should not be in that kind of a relationship because his 
style of doing business and the time demands that he places on other people, which he is absolutely 100% right for him to do, are completely incompatible with the way I want my business life to operate. Um, and so a lot of money, perhaps, um, uh, but turn it down and move on to the next one. So I'm extremely selective because I don't want to be unfair to the other person and get them into a working relationship that they are going to be extremely frustrated and unhappy with. Um, and I've made it a point to try not to have a landscape littered with dissatisfied, disgruntled, and complaining clients. Um, and you will be hard-pressed to find one. Um, and part of it is because I'm very selective to start with. And I'm extremely selective because I value the time and the way I manage my time above all else. And, you know, a client who consumes time disproportionate to their, to their monetary value to you is a bad client. doesn't mean they're a bad client for somebody else, but it means they're a bad client for you. And I just want to take a second on this because it's you and I have talked about this many times. It's you also have this rule that uh, any time you start to work with someone and they've sued everybody that they've ever worked with, you don't work with them. Well, yeah, there's a couple of litmus tests that I suggest to people. I mean, one is <laughs> this is a good know, one. <laughs> you know, yeah, if if somebody is Mr. Law Firm, um, what makes you think you're going to be the first one that you know doesn't wind up in court? And it, there's a litmus test of. You know, if you're going to get into a business deal with someone, there ought to be three people they can give you to call who have done deals with them in the past and will do another deal with them. Right. And if they can't produce three, uh, again, what makes you think you're going to be the first happy one? You know, um, and, and, and I mean, I've got like other little rules, like if I wake up three mornings in a row thinking about you, and we're not sleeping together, you've got to go. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> and, and, I mean, I have fired clients and, you know, terminated relationships. Uh, usually as politely and civilly as possible. I mean, it's, you know, but it's, look, we are just not compatible. And it doesn't make me a bad guy and it doesn't make you a bad guy, but we shouldn't be doing business together. And that just saves so much time to, like, think that out in advance without, you know, jumping into, you know, the enthusiasm of the deal that you're just going to have to spend months and a zillion dollars to get out of. Yeah, well, you know, all relationships are costlier to exit than they are to enter. Uh, well, and, and it's a good thing to remember. Absolutely. And, and speaking of, of, of that, um, what do you say to people or clients or others who are simply aggravated by the way that you work and the limits of access to you? What do you say to them? Occasionally you can, you can, like, you can get them out of it by being funny about it. Uh, but for the most part, um, I have to have the, you know, the, the here's how I work talk um, early and occasionally again and after a little while again. 
And, um, uh, you know, I do my very best to explain myself, whether it's to a vendor. Um, so, like, if I go to a new vendor and ask for price quotes and information, my query letter to them tells them right out of the gate, here's how I work. And, you know, I, I want a fax. I don't want a phone call. I don't want an email. It's going to be a week before. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to to explain the rules of engagement. And I do my best to present it in a light that it's not just for my benefit. It's for your benefit, too. And so, for example, the phone thing, yeah, there may be a delay before you can get to me. You may not really like not being able to pick up the phone and just call me and have to go through Vicky and get a phone call scheduled. On the other hand, you'll never play phone tag with me. You'll never leave a message and wonder when in the devil somebody's going to get back to you or did they get the message or what the hell's happening. And when you do have a time scheduled to talk to me, you're going to talk to me, and I'm going to be prepared to talk to you. So... I do my best to sort of couch it as, you know, this is a win-win deal. This is this is going to be as much fun for you as it is for, for me. Um, I'll acknowledge the fact that it's frustrating, you know, that this is different, and, and, and it is different than the way most people are used to being in a business relationship. Um, but then I'm willing, ultimately, to to drive someone off at the beginning or to part company with anybody at any period of time. And I, and I got to make the point, I would do this regardless of the business that I was in. You could transplant me tomorrow to a catering company, to a bridal event planning company, to a photography studio, uh, to financial services, on and on and on. And I would be playing the game exactly the same way. Well, you could always send them your No BS Time Management book for entrepreneurs. Of course, then we would assume that they would, you know, actually read it. Can read, will read, yeah. Um, in general, why don't you think more people adopt many or, like, all of your me- methods to manage their time and productivity, considering that you're such a great role model with your own productivity? There's different reasons for different people, you know. Um, I think that... Um, that a lot of people let themselves get get uh, get beat up and shoved back out of it. You know, they kind of want to toy with it, but they aren't really committed. And so the resistance of others um, in the well, you know, because you you have the kits for managers and for employees and a coach in that arena. I mean, so the guy walks in the office with his list of here's how things are going to be from here on out, and the staff all gathers together at lunch and says, uh, he must have gone to a seminar over the weekend. And, you know, we'll just ride this out just like we rode everything else out. We'll beat this out of it. And so let's dig in our heels a little bit and make this difficult, and in two weeks it'll go away. Exactly. And so the resistance of others, um, uh, the complaint of a client or two causes panic, um, excessive concern just in general over what others think of me, um, you know, others' opinion. I mean, that's a biggie. See, I don't care if they think I'm weird or unreasonable 
or, or strange or arrogant or, you know, whatever label they put on this is irrelevant to me. And the only thing that's relevant to me is results. And the results are the two areas of accountability, time and money. So they can have whatever opinion they like, privately or publicly, as long as I'm controlling my time the way I want to control my time and I'm getting their money. Then, then the opinion is not particularly relevant to me. Um, a lot of people don't do it actually out of ego. Um, you know, there's a lot of people whose whose self-esteem and sense of importance is tied to having to be constantly accessible and having to be interrupted and needed and, and having drama around them um, and having everybody dependent upon them. Um, and so, you know, that's an obstacle to it. Um, there's, um, you know, the the most practical thing is bad marketing, so they don't have enough demand for themselves and their business, and that engenders fear. And a big reason that I have actually had come up more recently in conversations with some very successful entrepreneurs is, is what I would call a, you know, a false idea about freedom, that this whole thing is really restrictive um, and, and unpleasant uh, well, for the well, user. Not. Well, let's talk about that one because you know I've heard people challenge you on this one that the way that you work and the way that you live is just way too rigid. It's not spontaneous enough for them, and they like to be in the moment, be in the flow. So, what do you say to them? Yeah, this, I had this conversation just recently, and, and the guy must have used the word spontaneous about 60 times. And and, and he owns, by the, by the way, he's a private pilot, and he owns a plane. And my hope for he and his passengers is that he's not spontaneous. I was going to say, I don't want my pilot to be spontaneous. Yeah. Oh, hell, let, let's, uh, you know, forget the flight plane. Let's just, <laughs> and, and we certainly don't want to bother checking the weather. Um, you know, there's, a, there's one of my many, you know, non-relatives with the same last name made that mistake um, and, and plowed his plane into the ocean. I mean, you know, let's not check the weather. Let's not pay attention to the flight plan. Let's turn off the radio. Screw the air traffic controllers. Let's be spontaneous. You know, I mean, uh, you know, and, and look, you probably don't want, say, your defense attorney if you're on trial or your heart surgeon to be spontaneous and just decide halfway through the operation that he wants to go play golf. Um, you know, and so we're dealing with important stuff here. And so I think spontaneity is, you know, vastly overrated. And my, if you want to call it extreme, my extreme control also gives me extreme freedom. It allows me to be, as I described, the only guy, even with platinum. I'll be the only guy with my platinum group there for two days not making phone calls on the breaks. The hour and 15 minutes we have for lunch, I get to have an hour and 15 minutes for lunch and social conversation. They get to use up half the time making and returning calls, checking messages, and checking their email. So, so overreacting. So who's more liberated, me or them? See, my argument is it's me, but the extreme liberation requires... Um, the extreme con control. 
Well, Dan, if someone is really interested in dramatically accelerating their progress towards goals or, say, their personal productivity or both, what would be the secrets? As with all of this, you know, there there are practical or mechanical things, and there are psychological things. And quickly, the the practical things are um, referring back to what I said earlier about definitions. I think a person has to connect the dots between um, what they're trying to be and what they're trying to accomplish and their behavior with regard to time and access and communication and all of that. The the psychological issues, um, amongst the many, um, I would rate this immunity to criticism as the highest ranking item um, because they are, the the more control they exercise over over their time and their life and their business, the more they are going to be criticized for it uh, by some people. And uh, you simply have got to be immune to it. A couple of places that the acceleration comes from, in addition to those we've already talked about, um, is you make yourself a lot more attractive and appealing to opportunity in general and to people of real substance and significance in specific, when you demonstrate that you're in control, that you're a master of your time and your life. And rather than demonstrating that with Mercedes and bling-bling and, you know, a gold-plated this or that, um, you demonstrate it through your control, your autonomy, um, and through your own behavior. Uh, you, we mentioned litmus tests earlier. Another one for me is punctuality. And I find it's a litmus test amongst a lot of very successful people about who they're going to do business with and who they're not going to do business with. Theory being, if somebody can't keep a small commitment, what on earth makes you think they're going to keep a big one? The other accelerant here, and there, we could have a whole conversation about not crossing the line into stupid arrogance, but Andrew Carnegie made a statement, Carnegie, for those who really are not with it, America's first billionaire and the person who sent Napoleon Hill off on his mission that led to the book Thinking the Rich. Andrew Carnegie said that all extremely successful people in their secret thoughts believe themselves far superior to everyone around them. And there's a as you very well know from the from the metaphysical side and prosperity consciousness side, I mean attracting wealth has a great deal to do with how much you really genuinely feel you deserve wealth and this this sense of superiority facilitates that that feeling of deserving. And when you are uh, in control, and when you are exceptionally productive, and when you do have and get great respect for your time from everybody you deal with, you do feel incredibly superior to everybody around you. 
I mean, I, look, I've mentioned it several times. I mean, I watch everybody scurrying out on the brakes to check their email and their cell phone messages and rattle their umbilical cords and respond to whatever went on in the last three hours. And I feel incredibly superior to the whole rat pack of them. I think to myself, look at them. All scurrying around, and look at me. I don't have to. And 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 out of that comes uh, this this sense of confidence and control and deserving that is really very attractive um, uh, uh, to important people with important projects and their money. That's fascinating because uh, I don't think we've ever really talked about that secret sense of uh, feeling superior before, but that really does put sort of an energy around you that makes people want to do business with you. Well, look, you run the ri- I run the risk in talking about it of coming across like, you know, an arrogant, conceited jackass. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I haven't talked about it much because, um, you know, I'm, I managed to to have people think that enough without pouring <laughs> gasoline on the fire. but. <laughs> Um, uh, oh, well. But, I mean, the truth, you know, look, why why does everybody stand in line to do business with Trump? I mean, it ain't because he's lovable, you know. It's because there is an aura of uh, of superiority. Um, and, and so it starts inside, and it emanates outside, and then it is attractive. And the way to get it, if you want it, is to be in real control of your time and your life. Let's talk about, um, are there any unique or different time management and self-management challenges that come with success that you don't have when you're first getting started? Counting money. <laughs> absolutely. Right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and where to put it once you make uh, it. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's our whole wealth group. That's what we spend our time talking Gosh, about. what do we do? You made all this money. How do we keep now it what? from the taxes? Yeah, now what? Um, yeah, there are. I mean, look, opportunity selection becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger challenge because the more successful you are, the more obviously and visibly productive you are, uh, the more people are drawn to you, and the more people come to you with opportunity upon opportunity upon opportunity, and um, and and many of them are good, and all of them are seductive, um, and so you know you need litmus tests like we talked about earlier to make decisions quickly and and efficiently and decisively, and sort things out, um, and. and the, the other big thing for people to really kind of keep in mind, it's preparation before opportunity. There is this thing, um, I've called it the phenomenon in the past, again, to quote Nightingale, I mean, Earl said prophetically for me that there will come a time in your life when you'll have the opportunity to accomplish more in 12 months than in the previous 12 years. Um, and again, as I've been around more and more and more super achievers and wealthy individuals, uh, the two things, the two life experiences they seem to all have in common. One is some huge wipeout and recovery, and the other, this period of time when everything clicked, and uh, and suddenly, in a, in a matter of months, uh, they had more going on and more opportunity and more money flowing to them and more ways to make money and more people standing in line to give them money than they had in the previous 10 years all added together. And... When that happens, um, you've got to be able to harvest it. 
because it's it's not going to happen repetitively, and for most people, it's not going to extend over a long period of time. Uh, the day in the sun is followed by a day in the rain, uh, just as it was preceded by a day in the rain. Um, and so the, the skills and the methods and the mindsets that we've been talking about throughout this entire uh, program um, are, are doubly important uh, to master and employ to be ready uh, for when this phenomena occurs and converse and, and kind of link to that. It's my opinion that mastering them and employing them uh, accelerates the, the arrival of the phenomena. You know, one of the things I've always admired about you is that you've always been really upfront about your personal life and problems and things. And the question I have for you is... What do you read the autobiography? <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Um, I guess the question is, because I know you'll tell the truth... What are the biggest mistakes you've personally made with regard to time management, and, and what has it cost you? Well, the most common and reoccurring one that um, I keep getting better at, um, and so by comparison to how good I was at it a decade ago, I'm now a 10. By comparison to what I need to be, I'm a 1. Um, and, and that is over-obligating myself, not saying no enough. And, you know, I think there's just lots of reasons that I do it and that pretty much everybody I know uh, who's very successful does it. I think we do it for different reasons than unsuccessful people do. Um, but, you know, there, there's uh, – and it's pretty much all emotional stuff, so it, it gets into managing your own emotions. I mean, I still have a a little a little queasy uh, thing that happens in my stomach and travels up to my head when I'm saying no to to a perfectly good client um, or, or a perfectly good project or a perfectly good opportunity. It's like being sort of ungrateful to the universe um, and to how far you've come to turn it down. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm very cognizant of the fact that, you know, I'm completely unqualified to do anything I do. And, and in many respects, it's, a, <clears throat> it's an absolute miracle that I've done as well as I have. And so there's a certain amount of, you know, how dare you say no to this, you schmuck, you ungrateful wretch. Do you ever, do you ever feel afraid that, like, it's going to dry up? Well, yeah, that paranoia has, and, and I don't think you should ever get completely rid of that. I think it's healthy paranoia to a degree. Um, I mean, I think it's very dangerous to think that it's always coming. Uh, but I'm pretty much, that really is no longer a big factor for me. I mean, it's there. I doubt you ever totally get rid of it. It's there. Um, but but it's it's not really a big issue for me and hasn't been for a handful of years. Um, for me, the sort of ungrateful wretch thing is more um, is more in play. Uh, I'm also very. I mean, I'm my behavior is compulsive in general, and so you know, like I I'm very aware. I have to be very careful of what hobby pursuits I might allow myself. That's why I don't play golf. 
um, because if I went to play golf casually, um, in three months I'd have a trainer, I'd own a golf course, and I'd be trying to get on the senior PGA. And uh, and if I played four games of poker just to have fun, I'd be training for a Turk tournament. And, and, you know, I'm aware of that. So some of it's compulsion, too. I mean... But that has served you well. Well, it's everything's the yin-yang deal. Sure, it's served me very well. But it's also in the way of... You know, I have a signing with my office. I'm trying to simplify my life, but I'm not cooperating. Um, <laughs> I need that one. <laughs> and, you know... I mean, so, so, so that's there. And the other mistake um, that that I've done much better at getting better at, but, you know, your total mistake is uh, for a long period of time working harder than necessary to make money and not devoting enough time and energy and thought early enough to making the money work for me. And, again, the, you know, the double-sided coin is, you know, I, I'm very good at, at making large sums of money. Um, and And by being good at that, you know, it's kind of like um, when I was younger and had a 28-inch waist, I had those years where you could eat anything and you didn't gain any weight. And, and I so, remember that. And so you have enough of those years. Sure, you don't learn anything during those years about healthy eating because there's no need to. And so similarly, um, you know, for a while, I mean, my answer to everything was just make more because I could make an unlimited amount of money up here. But then I went too long without paying any attention to making the money work for me. Um, and so th- th- those are really the two, I get, you know, you ask for mistakes. Those are the two mistakes. Okay, what still surprises you about how others manage their time or react to the way you manage yours? There are are several, but for the sake of our time, I'm going to deal with just one. And that is the overall unwillingness, even after hearing all of this and seeing it up close and considering it, and 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 finding the case I make rational, uh, still continuing to operate the same way people have always operated. You know, I, I, I watch people go to extraordinary extremes to protect everything but their time. And they won't tolerate, um, you know, anything being interfered with or abused or stolen. So they lock up their valuables. Uh, They buy burglar alarms. They've got an alarm and a doohickey on their steering wheel to keep somebody from stealing their car. Um, If they're if they're in an office where people share a refrigerator, God forbid somebody should eat three pieces of their celery because um, everybody's going to hear about it. Um, but they um, now, just like the fax machine became a home appliance, the shredders become a home appliance, and everybody's got one to protect themselves against identity theft. But, but yet they're still willing to let people steal their time with impunity and not be angered um, by this and not be motivated to really do something about it. Um, and, and, and I honestly don't get it. It, it, still, it still surprises me when I see otherwise smart people 
um, uh, with with their business life completely out of control and being pulled this way and that way, and as I say, scurrying out to the phone every chance they get. Um, and I'm actually surprised when they still like don't get what I do and why I do it, because um, it just seems so so sensible and logical to me, and so odd that they will go to great extremes to protect everything else and let the one asset that can't be replenished, replaced, insured, bought again, the one asset that dissipates uh, and can never be replenished, that they don't fight to protect. It's almost like they have amnesia about their own worth. Yeah, I see, I, you know, I, I, I've talked to people about it. I've speculated, as you just speculated, and I have yet to come up with any explanation that seems to serve well as to why this disconnect exists, uh, but, but it clearly does. Well, I, I know we're out of time, and I'm going to shift gears here, and this is going to probably be one of my last questions. I'm going to ask a marketing and sales question instead of a time management question. But, you know, think of somebody who's who's a salesperson, and they're trying to sell something, and they're trying to get to somebody like you, you know, a real super busy person who's reluctant to let go of any of their time and has a ton of barriers and uh, of things in the way. How does the person deal with that? I mean, how do they get to people like you? Well, it's a real good question. I have one of the cartoons I have, because I collect them about this topic. There's a secretary sitting at a desk or a receptionist, and there's a wall, and there's a sign on the wall above where they're like about the height of above a door, and the sign says president, uh-huh. but there's no door in the wall. <laughs> and there's a guy standing at the desk, and she says, well, you can't get to him. That's why there's no door. Um, you know, it, it, look, it's very difficult, uh, but it's, it's such a good question because I and people like me are terrific clients and terrific customers. Uh, n- number one, price is rarely our predominant deciding factor in who we deal with or what we buy. Other things are more important to us, which means we'll buy at premium prices. Uh, and, and number two, we respect other people's time because we demand that our time is respected. So we're really great customers and clients if you can get us. And the ultimate answer to your question, the big general answer is, again, to think that, you know, that's the my business is different thing. So this this client trying to sell Kennedy something is different than trying to sell a lot of other people something because Kennedy's different. Well, he is and he isn't. You know, the the, the, the fundamentals don't change. The basic necessities of, of, of getting of making a sale, if you boil it all the way down to the simplest sales formula, it's attention, interest, desire, action. And so th- those fundamentals don't change. And getting my attention is really no different than getting anybody else's attention. It, it boils down to do you have the right bait? Um, you know, I always use the story of if you want to fill your backyard up with deer, you don't put a 500-pound block of cheese out there. And if you want to fill it up with rats for some reason, you don't put a salt block out there. Um, and, and so mostly people are, are, are holding out the wrong bait, and then they're wondering why their prospects, in this case a prospect like me or me, 
why we're not jumping. We're not jumping because the bait doesn't interest us. And and a lot of marketers here in trying to do this one-size-fits-all thing. You know, they go get a brochure done, a generic brochure, and they got a generic sales message, and now they're trying to use that with everybody and anybody. And, uh, you know, you need different bait for different critters. And so the, the general principle is absolutely the same. And it's not that we don't respond, by the way. Uh, I tore two things out of the newspaper uh, today um, and called the 800 numbers to request information. Um, I responded to a radio commercial this week. Uh, I gave Vicky three websites to go download because I wanted to see them. So it's not like we're not open. Uh, in many cases, we're looking and searching and more alert than the non-affluent, non-busy, non-entrepreneurial client. Uh, but it's, you've got to figure out what the precise best bait is for the prospect or group of prospects uh, that you want to reach. And then you've got to figure out how, how that group of prospects likes to process information um, and, and, and utilize that format. So, for example, email blasts to Fortune 1000 CEOs, useless. I mean, pointless. Uh, and it doesn't matter what the message is. Uh, that's not how Fortune 1000 CEOs acquire uh, and deal with information. And the barriers, if we have screeners or what are some called gatekeepers, I mean, your choices are, you know, the shock and awe thing, the overwhelming force. Uh, you don't send you don't send a direct mail piece with one of those little tiny aluminum trash cans that probably everybody on the call has seen. You send a direct mail piece in a full-size trash can, and you don't send it by mail. You have it delivered by a Brinks guy who's got it handcuffed to his wrist and has to bring it into the office. I mean, so you've got that option, referral, of course, because the higher up the affluency ladder you go, the more decisions are made through referrals or incredible persistence. But it does all start with the right message. Well, um, Dan, as always, um, even though I went through all of your material, as the whole time you've talked here, I've taken notes. I mean, there's just this endless amount that I can learn from you and, and appreciate all your time. And I hope that everybody has um, gotten a lot of thoughts and taken a lot of notes about things that they could do with time management and that, that they actually, uh, what, do something about it, right, That would Dan? be cool. That would be cool. <laughs> very cool. I want to thank you very much, and I think um, this is the end of the program, right? That's it. Okay. Gotta go. Gotta go. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'd also get access to the whole enchilada with all dance courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.